Let's begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. All right, we'll continue with the hymn of the month. We give thee but thine own. Give thee but thine own. We give thee but thine own, whatever thy gift may be. All that we have is thine alone, a trust, O Lord, from Thee. May we thy bounties thus as stewards true receive, and gladly hast thou blessed us to thee our first fruits give. Our hearts are bruised and dead. And homes are bare and cold, and lambs for whom the shepherd fled are straying from the fold. To comfort and to bless, to find a balm for woe. To tend the lone and fatherless, his angels' work below. The captive to release, to God the lost to bring, to teach the way of life and peace. It is a Christ-like thing. And we believe thy word, though dim our faith may be. Whatever thine we do, O Lord, we do it unto thee. And we'll go down to the catechism memory work. What is the office of the keys? The office of the keys is that special authority which Christ has given to his church on earth to forgive the sins of repentant sinners, but to withhold forgiveness from the unrepentant as long as they do not repent. Where is this written? This is what St. John the Evangelist writes in chapter 20. The Lord Jesus breathed on his disciples and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. John 20, 22 to 23. Let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. And uh, continue with Luther's morning prayer. I thank you, my heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have kept me this night from all harm and danger, and I pray that you keep me this day also from sin and every evil, that all my doings in life may please you. Into your hands I commend myself, my body and soul, and all things. Let your holy angel be with me, that the evil foe may have no power over me. Amen.
The Almighty and merciful Lord, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, bless us and keep us. Amen. All right, kids can go off to Sunday school. Excuse me. Ooh, my trash can. So with the hymn of the month, uh, so today is more or less Stewardship Sunday. I was trying not to define what exactly Stewardship Sunday was uh, for the sake of attendance purposes, but... Um, we're going to hand out pledge cards today, and I'm going to talk about stewardship in the sermon. So uh, we're going to sing this hymn today at some point. Maybe it's the, is it the opening or closing hymn? I don't remember. Um, let's see. It's not the closing. It's probably, I think it's the opening. Yeah, it's the opening hymn. Um, so we'll sing this today. The stanzas that stuck out to me when we were just singing this now um, was uh, kind of stanzas four through six. Um, but especially that first line of, of stanza four, to comfort and to bless, to find a balm for war, for, for, for war, for woe, to find a balm for woe. Um, the, one of the things I'm going to talk about in the sermon today is that stewardship, you know, comes across as uh, this, you know, it's, it's talking about money and asking people to give to the church and it's, telling people to budget and things like this. And it's, you know, got a reputation for being a legalistic topic in the church. And, you know, I've actually had a lot of people, um, surprisingly, I, I didn't really know this because I've never actually been a member of a Baptist church or anything or gone to Baptist church very often. I know things about Baptists. But um, after after moving here, and talking to people more, more and more people about church, one of the common things I heard from people coming from Baptist churches specifically is like a third or a half of the sermons are about money, are about stewardship. Like they, and I, I'm sure it's not every Baptist church, but I heard that from like probably four or five different people. Like I grew up Baptist, and it was always it was always about money. Um, so anyway. My my point in saying that is that stewardship has this. So so one, be thankful you only have to hear about it once a year, um, not about you know not not half ser- half the sermons. Um, but but two, it's got this reputation for being about legalism or whatever. But um, there's actually a comfort that comes along in stewardship. So interestingly enough, the text for today in the gospel is. Do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow has enough worries for itself. And it's in that context that Jesus says you can't serve God in money. right? So what we're going to talk about in the sermon is getting our priorities straight um, in what we care about in life and, and what we put our energy into. But there is a comfort and a blessing and a balm for woe that comes along in good stewardship. That when we get our priorities straight, when... When we uh, get everything in our life lined up the way that God intended, it is a comforting thing. Um, we actually worry less. It's counterintuitive, um, but uh, we worry less when we have better stewardship. So it's interesting to me that in the stewardship hymn that starts out, we give thee but thine own, whatever the gift may be, all that we have is thine alone, um, talks about how uh, through this, the angels are going to comfort and bless us, right? And to find a balm for woe. And uh, you can look at stanzas five and six too, right? The captive to release, the God the lost to God lost to bring, to teach the way of life and peace. It is a Christ-like thing. So whenever we engage in this kingdom work, um, there is a comfort that comes along in that, right? A Christ, it's a Christ-like thing, and. And then, hey, come on in. And then stanza, stanza six, take a seat anywhere you want. Um, stanza six, and we believe thy word, though dim our faith may be. Right. So even though it's hard to believe sometimes the promises that Christ gives, there we we believe thy word, and even though our our faith is dim. Um, Whatever we do for thine, O Lord, we do it un, unto thee, right? 
So there's this kind of leap of faith idea when it comes to stewardship, right? Again, it's counterintuitive um, that that if you give more to the church, that there's going to be more blessings that come back. Uh, you know, most the the normal intuition, human intuition, is to to save, right? To hoard, to 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 hold up, to keep things for myself. But um, and we always have to we always have to caveat that. This is not the prosperity gospel, right? We're not saying that if you, if you are a good steward and if you if you give a full tithe and, um, you know, steward your time, talents, and treasures that, oh, then you're gonna go win the lottery or you're gonna um, get a promotion at work or whatever that is, you know, that Joel Osteen teaches. Um, that's not what we're saying. But the Bible is clear that there are earthly blessings, and there is a I mean, this is what Paul talks about in the epistle reading. I don't want to give away the entire sermon, but um, that we reap what we sow, right? So if we sow our energy and our time and our money and everything else into the kingdom of God, we're going to reap benefits from the kingdom of God. Um, I, I'm not, I don't know if I actually have it in the sermon or not. I was thinking about putting, um, I think it's in Proverbs 3. There's a there's a proverb um, that talks about bringing the, your first fruits to the Lord from your vineyard, that your barns may be full, right, and your vats and your vats may be full of wine, which that that sound we're we're I think in our context we're very scared to talk that way because of like Joel Osteen abusing verses like that um, and people who preach the prosperity gospel, which is you know a false teaching, but um, at the same time, we have to say what Scripture says. And if Scripture says there's earthly blessings for being good stewards, then there's earthly blessings for being good stewards, right? So, um, all right, we'll leave that at that. Uh, in the catechism memory work we have today, what is the office of the keys? The office of the keys is that special authority which Christ has given to his church on earth to forgive the sins of repentance sinners, but to withhold forgiveness from the unrepentant as long as they do not repent. Now, the thing that's interesting about this is that the office of the keys is what we normally refer to to talk about the office of the holy ministry, right? And when when Jesus gives the keys to Peter and the disciples, it's just Peter and the apostles, right? It's just Peter and the disciples there with uh, Jesus on the mountain. And when he, in John 20, when he breathes on them and gives them the Holy Spirit uh, and tells them, forgive anyone their sins, they are forgiven. Do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Again, it's just those in the apostolic office, right? It's just the pastors, right? And so um, clearly what we're talking about is pastors here. But what what does Luther say about the office of the keys? He says it's that special authority which Christ has given to his church on earth, right? Not, Not just to pastors. And why does he say that? Well, the idea here is that every Christian has the right to a pastor, right? Every Christian deserves to have the ability to have their sins forgiven by a pastor, right? Uh, Every Christian deserves to belong to a church and to have someone who will exercise the office of the keys over to them. And so um, Lutherans have always talked this way that the office of the keys is actually a gift. It's not just to pastors, um, but it's actually a gift for the whole church. That then the church, uh, when it calls men to serve among it and among them, then it gives those keys over to the pastors. So um, this is the idea behind like ordinations and installations, um, especially installations and in the way that we practice things in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod is that whenever a pastor is installed at a place, that is that congregation giving him the office of the keys to exercise on their behalf, um, if that makes sense. So it's kind of an interesting way that he words it, right? But um, this is is an important thing, I think, um, especially if you look at other churches like, say, the Episcopalians or the Roman Catholics, that put a big focus on 
what they call uh, apostolic succession, that what really makes a pastor is the fact that they have uh, a apostolic succession, a, a line going back to Peter or whatever the case may be. And um, while that might be fine and good, right, um, there, there, there are actually Lutheran churches in other places in the world that have some version of a apostolic succession. That's fine. But the point that Luther's making here is it's not about who ordained you, right? Just like Paul talks about when he's talking to the Corinthians, it's not about who baptized you, right? There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And, and so there is also one forgiveness of sins, and the church owns that, right? That's, that's for the church to have. And so the church needs pastors, and when a pastor is called and installed, or whatever the case may be, uh, that's the church uh, giving that pastor the, those keys to exercise on their behalf. Okay. Any questions or comments on the hymn of the month or the catechism memory work for today? All right. We will go then to Micah. So... We've been working our way slowly but surely through Old Testament history, and we've made our way to the prophets of Judah. And let's see, this will be the fourth prophet of Judah that we've done. We've done Obadiah, Joel, Isaiah, and so now we're on Micah. Now we're on Micah. So Micah um, is... One of the minor prophets, so we're back into a minor prophet. We did Isaiah, took us a couple weeks because he's so large of a prophet, um, both in the number of chapters in his book and in his fame, if you will. Micah, maybe you haven't read in a while because it's a shorter book in the book of the Twelve. Um, so for a long time in the church, by the way, this is kind of an interesting fact. I don't. It probably doesn't change much about your life or anything, but interesting fact is that it wasn't until semi-recently that people started referring to the minor prophets. Um, so when I when I say minor prophets, um, if you look through your Bible, right, you have when you get to the prophets, you have all the major prophets first. So you have Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, right? When you look um, at the the back of your Old Testament, you have all the minor prophets, right, that are really short, right? So the, those other ones are long, then you have the short ones. And they're all, um, so anyway, my point is, my fun fact is that for a long time in the church, people didn't really refer to the minor prophets by their individual names so much um, as they did the book of the 12, right? So there's 12 minor prophets and for a long time in the church, up until um, I want to say like the probably like the 1800s or something like that, most people just referred to the minor prophets as the Book of the Twelve, right? So it's like a small book with a lot of little books inside. Anyway, so Micah is one of these minor prophets, and uh, if you're looking for Micah in your Bibles, it's between Jonah and Nahum. If you haven't already found it, so if you find Jonah or Nahum, then you can find find Micah. Um, but those minor prophets, they're hard to find because they're they're so short, right? So you can, if you sometimes if you turn more than two pages at, at a time, then you might you might miss it. So uh, Micah is only uh, seven chapters, so probably a three or four pages in your Bible, maybe maybe five. Let's see. Oh, mine's like six or seven. All right. So we're gonna look at Micah. So some background information. Um, First of all, you can just look at verse 1-1. One, one. That gives us a lot of information. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Morasheth. Morasheth, uh, if you do happen to have one of those packets um, and you look at the divided kingdom map, Morasheth is kind of a suburb of Jerusalem. So it's uh, just to the southwest of, of Jerusalem. So obviously Micah is a prophet of Judah. That's why we're covering him right now, because we're talking about the prophets of Judah. And in this southern kingdom of Judah, uh, you have Jerusalem as the capital city 
Morishef is um, right west there of Topeka, Kansas. Uh, <laughs> Tokia. Tokia, Ju- Judah, same difference. Um, so it is it is interesting to think about, right, the dynamic. So he's not quite in Jerusalem, but he's near Jerusalem. So the things he says, the word probably gets to Jerusalem, right? Um, I would I would imagine so. And uh, he's kind of, you know, maybe people at Jerusalem consider him an outsider, but he's not going to uh, fear away from talking about hard things that have to do with Jerusalem and Judah. But um, the point is he's right there in the midst of it. Uh, he's, he's right there in the midst of it. Okay. So um, Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So if you compare that with Isaiah, who prophesies during Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, Micah is prophesying around the same time. So um, there are multiple prophets prophesying in the same place at the same time. And one of these is Micah, right? Micah is prophesying at the same time as Isaiah. So all the, all the things that we kind of talked about with Isaiah as far as what the kings are doing, right? Hezekiah is the hopeful king. He's one of the good kings. Um, but the other kings, for the most part, well, Jotham is good. Uzziah starts out, well, he's not during the time of Uzziah, really, but um, Jotham is is good, and, and Ahaz is, is very evil, but then Hezekiah is kind of the last hope of Judah. All those things uh, that we talked about when we talked about those kings apply, that applied for Isaiah as far as the context that Micah is in. Okay. So that's the time they prophesize, and... It's always great when we get one of these superscriptions, too, about when they prophesied, because whenever they say things, Micah, for instance, talks a lot, as a lot of the Judah prophets do, about the both the, the fall of, of Israel with the Assyrian Empire captivity and the fall of Judah with the Babylonian captivity. Um, Micah talks about these things, but he talks about them hundreds of years in advance, right? So um, he's still going to be. So when he prophesies about the Assyrian captivity, that's something that goes on during his lifetime. When he prophesies about the Babylonian captivity, that's another hundred years away. And so it's um, it goes to show the prophet's ability to, well, prophesy, right? But of course, uh, we have this problem today. These modern Bible scholars want to um, get rid of any notion that a prophet might actually be able to tell the future. And so they set, they try and date these prophets uh, past those dates. But if you have in the text uh, a subscription or a superscription, depend, um, I can't remember what the correct term for that is actually, that, that says uh, in this introduction – uh, these, this is the word of the Lord that came to this prophet at this time, um, and all of the textual ev- evidence we have says that that's very much part of the book, and that this book was very much written during this time period. Uh, it would be, it's kind of impossible to say, oh, they, they didn't tell the future, right? They did. They prophesied. Um, so. That's one one of many reasons we can have faith in, in the inerrancy of the word, if you will. All right. Uh, final piece of background information is the uh, that you don't get in one one is what the name Micah means, uh, which is basically what he actually says himself later on in chapter seven is who is like God. Now. He actually adds on to that a little bit, but um, who is like God? That's what Micah means. And uh, when we look at 718 later on, so keep that verse in mind, 718, uh, you'll see how he kind of it, – it's, it's actually a bookend in, in the book. So he begins 
the prophecy with his name. This is the word of the Lord that came to who is like God of Morasheth in the days of Jotham. And then at the end of the book, he's going to say, who is a God like you talking to God? All right. So it's kind of a nice bookend. Um, it's also just a it's a great name. Right. Uh, who is who is like our God? So if uh, anyone's looking for any children names in the future, it's a good name. I guess that would be me. <laughs> yeah. We can't decide on anything. So. Um. All right. So let's look at some before we dive into text. Let's look at some uh, main themes of the book of Micah. Uh, the first theme that we hear about a lot is a, a theme that kind of is in and out of the prophets. Um, but one of these is is the remnant, right? That God is going to preserve a faithful remnant. Now, we heard that a little bit in Isaiah. Isaiah specifically talked about the remnant that would remain in Jerusalem after the Babylonian captivity and then the, the faith that would come out of that remnant. Uh, in Jerusalem, and especially the Messiah that would come out of that remnant. But uh, Micah actually expands this remnant a little bit, that he's, he's, he's going to say there are faithful that will remain across what we call uh, the diaspora. So the, the term diaspora is this term for in a captivity. When you have a, when you have a captivity and people, um, we talked a little bit about how captivities work is you have the Babylonian Empire, right, that spans, you know, across the ancient Near East. And what they do when they take Judah captive is they spread them all out, right? They break them up so that they don't um, become one. They don't just take them all to one place because then they would have a better chance of rebelling. Yeah, power in numbers, right? So they um, disperse. You can hear the word disperse in diaspora. They dispersed the Jews all over the empire. And so there's Jewish people all over the empire that are in what's called the diaspora. Well, he says, in this diaspora, there are going to be faith pockets of faithful people all over the place. right? There are going to be people who remain faithful, who repent. And so um, so that's, uh, that's part of the remnant here. But uh, the remnant theology, it's not just true in the Babylonian captivity or in the Assyrian captivity, right? What, is, what does Jesus say, for instance, in Matthew 16? Um, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, right? That there's always going to be a faithful remnant, right? He has to remind Elijah of this um, in the divided early on in the divided kingdom. He has to remind his people of this after they've been taken into captivity. Uh, Jesus even has to remind the disciples of this in the New Testament church, right? That there's always going to be, he's always going to preserve for himself faithful people. He's always going to preserve for himself a remnant. So that's one of the major themes here. There's a couple passages we'll look at for that. Um, Unsurprisingly, another major theme in the prophet is disaster, right? (laughs) Or or you could say, uh, you know, judgment. Um, that God is going to come and judge people for their sins, right? He's going to judge them for their unfaithfulness. And that there is going to be a disaster that will come upon both Israel and Judah, right? And he prophesies about both. He prophesies, um, we'll look at what he does in in verse 1. Similar to a lot of the prophets, uh, what Micah does is he'll talk about uh, the the pagan nations, right, surrounding Israel and Judah, and then he'll talk about Israel and Judah, and say, "Hey, look, you guys are included with them. You've done what they've done, and there's going to be a disaster that comes upon you as well." Okay. Um. 
And what's, what's kind of interesting, too, about uh, the timeline of uh, Micah is that he prophesies about the destruction of Israel. And then the people in Judah, who he's speaking to, right? He's, he's only speaking to Judah, but he talks about these other things. The people in Judah will see very quickly like within Micah's own lifetime, that he was right. And if he was right about what he said about the disaster in Israel, he's he's also going to be right about what he said about the disaster in Judah. Right? So it should be a wake-up call to them. Of course it's not. But it should be. Okay? Uh, Also, unsurprisingly, as a theme, uh, we have Christ or the Messiah. We have a couple uh, really... um, direct messianic prophecies in in Micah. Of course, the whole thing is about Jesus, but um, especially in chapter 5, we have one really direct messianic prophecy, so we'll look at that one later uh, when we get to the key passages. Uh, and then, um, just kind of uh, generally, we have um, the same back and forth we had in Isaiah of sin and grace, law, gospel, judgment, hope, however you want to say that. We have the same kind of back and forth that Micah will go very hard on them for a couple uh, chapters, if you will, and then he'll end with a prophecy of hope, right? And that, that, that kind of happens on the scale of the outline of the whole book, and then also within each individual section, he, he tends to do that. So this back and forth of judgment and hope, it's very very Lutheran in that way, very law gospel-y. Um, it's a, the, the, tech, the technical term, law gospel um, Okay, so uh, that's the main themes. Let's, uh, we have to room right here. Let's look at the outline of the book real quick. So a pretty simple uh, major outline for you is that you have uh, the disaster prophecies, in 1 through 3, you have the salvation prophecies in 4 through 5. And then in uh, 6 through 7, you're never going to guess this, you have disaster <laughs> ending in salvation prophecies in 6 through 7. So again, you can kind of see in the, that broader outline of the whole book, um, that it's disaster, salvation, disaster, salvation, disaster, salvation, uh, which is a rhetorical device for him, I think. All right. All right. Any uh, questions on Micah so far? We'll look at some uh, key passages here. Um, I just need a place to write. All right, let's uh let's just start with uh, chapter one, um, where I'm gonna actually read. What time is it? Yeah, I'm gonna read one through fourteen, which is really sets up. Um, it sets up the book, but it also gives you an idea of these disaster prophecies um, and what they look like. Right. So uh, we already well we already read verse one. I'll start verse two. Hear all you peoples, listen, O earth, and all that is in it. Let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place. He will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. The mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will spit, split like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. Okay, so um, the operating principle so far for Micah is that the Lord is in charge, right? The Lord is in his holy temple and he will come from his holy temple and tread on the high places of the earth. Right? The high places are the, the places where they've set up the uh, false gods, the altars, the, the, the fake temples or the pagan temples, right? The Lord is in charge, right? The Lord is the Lord of all creation. He's going to come from his holy temple um, and he's going to judge you, right? So he starts out with this this notion, kind of the first article of 
of creation, right? Um, God is in charge of everything, and he's going to judge. All of this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what are the high places of Judah? Are they not Jerusalem? Okay, so immediately, what is Samaria? Does anyone remember from the when we talked about the northern kingdom? It's a mixed it was, race. It, it is a mixed race. and Yeah, so it it's kind of pagan in the sense that, so, so the, the whole Samaritan thing is interesting. Um, the other week we had the good Samaritan, right? But basically the Samaritans, because they're, they're way up north, and when they intermix with the people they intermix with, the, those Jewish people retain some level of Jewish identity, but they only, they're, they're like very odd in their theology. So they, they reject most of the prophets. They retain the books of Moses, and I think they accept Isaiah randomly. Like this is, I'm talking about later on in history, the, the Jews that remain in Samaria. In Samaria, in Samaria. Um, so you ha- they like accept like the books of Moses and Isaiah, but then they reject the rest of the Old Testament. Um, so it's a weird group, but the Pharisees then hate them, right? The Pharisees are like, they're like half-breeds, right, basically. Um, so anyway, uh, that, so that's all interesting and true. Um, what I was getting at is that Samaria is the capital of Israel, right, in the northern kingdom. If you remember, they had two capitals, right? It's uh, Samaria and is it, is it Dan, is that right? Um, no, Bethel, sorry. Um, oh, they had no. They kind of had three, right? They had Samaria, and then they had they had Dan and Bethel. Dan way up north, and Bethel and south. They had they had temples in each place, right? They had a temple in Samaria, and then one up in Dan, and one down in Bethel. Yeah. With the uh, woman at the well, right? Yeah. The I mean, the New Testament message about the Samaritans is that they're not beyond salvation. Right. Um, and this is uh, a judgment against the Pharisees. Right. That you don't have to. Um, that the, the ritual law is fulfilled in Christ and that what it takes to be saved is faith in Christ. Right. And if a Samaritan can recognize that and um, Jesus pictures himself right as a Samaritan in a sense, uh, which is very interesting. It's a judgment against the Pharisees who are trying to use God's word uh, to create a system of righteousness. And so um, in that, yeah, I mean, in that sense, uh, the remnant is anyone who has faith, right, in the Messiah and the woman at the well. Um, at least that faith is created in her when when Christ comes to her. So uh, anyway, Back to the verse here. So, verse 5, all of this is for the transgression of Jacob, right? And notice he says Jacob because, so in the divided kingdom, of course, you get this division between Israel and Judah. And so the, it, there's Israelites, as far as the ethnicity goes, that are in both Judah and Israel. But it's, you know, confusing because Israel can refer to the thing as a whole or it can refer to the thing in part, as just the northern kingdom. But this is why Micah doesn't use the term uh, Israel at first. What's the term he uses first? Jacob, right? To make clear that he's referring to the whole thing because all of these are sons of Jacob, who's renamed Israel, right? And then he goes after the capital cities, right? So then he says, and uh, the transgression of Jacob and sends for the house of Israel... What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria, right? He says Samaria itself in its existence, right? Because what is the what is the capital city supposed to be? It's supposed to be Jerusalem. But when the, when, when the 10 tribes left and went and made their own capital in Samaria, that was against God's law, right? So Samaria's existence is wicked, right? It's not unredeemable, but it's wicked. And so he says, is it not Samaria? And what are the high places of Judah? Are they not Jerusalem? So he says, what are these, you know, 
pagan gods, these Baals and Asherah of Judah, are they not Jerusalem, right? He says they are the, the city itself is now a high place, right? The city itself is now a false god. And so um, he goes right after the capital cities of both Israel and Judah. All right. Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap of ruins in the field, places for planting a vineyard. I will pour down her stones into the valley and I will uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces and all her pay as a harlot shall be burned with fire. All her idols I will lay desolate for she gathered it from the pay of a harlot and they shall return to the pay of a harlot. Um, So he's basically saying about Israel, right? She cheated on me and and she's... uh, going to go back to what she was before right therefore i will well and howl i will go stripped and naked i will make welling like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches for her wounds are incurable for it has come to judah it has come to the gate of my people to jerusalem so notice he's like he he starts lambasting israel and then right like in the middle of a sentence he says oh yeah and it's also by the way come here Right, And now it's among you too in Judah. It's come to the gate of my people. Tell it not in Gath, weep not at all in Beth, Aphra. Roll yourself in the dust, pass by in naked shame, you inhabitant of Shafir. The inhabitant of Zanan does not go out. Beth, Ezel mourns. It places, its place to stand is taken away from you. For the inhabitant of Maroth pined for good, but disaster came down from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. O inhabitant of Lachish, Harness the chariot to swift steeds. She was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion, for transgressions of Israel were found in you. And then this is the verse I wanted to end on, um, even though there's still only two verses left in the whole chapter. Therefore you shall give presents to Morsheth Gath. The houses of Akzib shall be a lie to the kings of Israel. Okay, so um, notice there that he includes his hometown, right? That his hometown is also a part of this judgment to Morsheth Gath, right? Um, and the, the way he's describing this is that basically the disaster is going to come on this land and that the land's going to return to its uh, previous state and that that's going to actually be a present to the land because it'll be better than it is when the unfaithful people are there, right? But he includes his hometown in that, right? So, uh, of course, when he talks about Judah as a whole, that's included, but it's interesting to me that he's from Morsheth and he includes Morsheth in the prophecy, right? Um, It would be like if I was prophesying disaster upon America, but then I was specifically like, an olive branch is also gonna get its share, right? Um, so it's kind of an interesting thing. All right. Um, next, next, let's look at uh, a couple of remnant passages. So we're going to look at 2, 12 to 13, and 5, 7 to 8. And we're going to look at these in conjunction just because they're both about the remnant. So 2, 12 to 13. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together like sheep of the fold, like flock in the midst of their pasture. They shall make a loud noise because of so many people. The one who breaks open will come up before them. They will break out, pass through the gate, and go out by it. Their king will pass before them with the Lord at their head. Okay, so... uh, Notice when we talked about the diaspora, we talked about how the Babylonians specifically wanted them to not have strength in numbers. Uh, The Babylonians specifically wanted to split them up into uh, many, many different places so that they would have very few people around them. But what what does he say about this remnant? Um, He's going to go out um, both... So again, he says Jacob, right? So from all over the place. 
and gather the remnant of Israel and put them together like the sheep of the fold, like a flock in the midst of their pasture, and they will make a loud noise because of so many people. Um, and then notice uh, what he talks about. He says they're going to pass through the gate and go out by it. Their king will pass before them with their Lord at the head. Right? So the people are going to be, the remnant's going to be gathered. They're going to be making a loud noise. They're going to pass through a gate and their king's going to go before them. Does anyone know what I'm thinking about? When Jesus rides into Jerusalem, Jerusalem yeah. yeah, when Jesus rides into Jerusalem, he comes into the gate, the city gate. Um, this is like uh, the Advent Psalm 24, right? Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may pass through, right? And so um, this is also a messianic prophecy, I think, mm-hmm. that the, the true gathering of the remnant is through Christ the king. Okay, let's look at verse 5, or chapter 5, excuse me, verses 2 to 5, or 2 to 4, 2 to 5. What am I talking about? 7 to 8, 7 to 8. Sorry, that's the next one. We're going to go back in a second, so, okay, we're, okay, sorry. 5, verses 7 to 8. Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass that tarry for no man nor wait for the sons of men. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the Gentiles in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep, who, if he passes through, both treads down and tears in pieces, and none can deliver. Okay, so um, again, we get uh, this image um, of flocks of sheep, but this time it's kind of interesting, right, that... Um, at first, the remnant was the flocks of sheep, but this time, uh, the remnant is going to be like a young lion among flocks of sheep. So the remnant's not just going to be gathered in many numbers, but the, the uh, remnant's going to be mighty, right? The remnant's going to be powerful, right? And, uh, and kind of like what I said with Matthew 16, I think the ultimate remnant of faithful people is those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ when he comes, right? That's the remnant. And when the Gentile mission goes forth and 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 many come to faith, right? Read the book of Acts. Uh, this remnant is mighty, right? The, the church is powerful. And you can see that in history in, in many ways, right? And, and I think sometimes we, you know, in our modern day church, especially as, you know, churches are closing and numbers are shrinking, um, we forget the power that we have, right, from the Lord. The Lord does give us power and might, and uh, we shouldn't be afraid to proclaim that and use that, right, um, to, to declare that we stand by way of the Lord, okay? Um, all right, there's a lot to say there, but we, we should keep going. Uh, so then if you just turn back one page or maybe not even um, – Chapter 5, verses 2 through 5, this is the this direct uh, prophecy of, of, of Jesus, which uh, we often read around Christmas time. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, th- though you are little among thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time that she who is in labor has given birth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel, and he shall stand and feed his flock. Right? The, the one who is to be the ruler, who's going to be born in Bethlehem, right? The, the little town, a little town of Bethlehem. He is going to be a shepherd. He's going to feed his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide, right? And think about John's gospel. Um, he, so um, this, is, this is one of the problems with English translations is um, that English translations sometimes translate the same English word multiple different ways, or the same Greek word multiple different ways. In John's gospel, he uses the word abide 
I think like 13 times or something, but it's translated in the ESV like seven different ways. So it's like keep, abide, um, uh, sometimes like be in. I don't remember all of them, but uh, anyway, you can remember some of the verses that John talks about abiding, right? Abide in me and I in you. And, and uh, or, you know, um, in John, is it John 4 when he talks about um, I am the vine, you are the branches, whoever abides in me and I in you, and he it is who bears much fruit, right? Um, anyway, my point is, right, in the majesty of the name of the Lord, uh, they shall abide in him, right? From now on, he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And this one, uh, I love this, verse 5, and this one shall be peace, right? He is peace. That is who he is. He is the peace of the Lord, right? Okay. So obviously very much about Jesus. And again, you cannot argue that Micah wrote this after Jesus was born, right? Um, that there, we, have, we have documents of Micah that are before Jesus was born, right? So um, the fact that Jesus is born in Bethlehem and is the ruler of the king of the Jews, right? He is the king of the Jews, that this is kind of impossible to deny, right? So... Um, is a is a great messianic passage. All right, uh, we'll go on to the prayer because it's ten o'clock, and we'll look at the last two key passages next week. Any final questions or comments on Micah so far? All right, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have sent us the ruler from Bethlehem to be our peace, to be our king, to be the one who would save us and gather us together as a faithful remnant. We pray that you would continue to keep us faithful, that we may be a remnant in this place, and that we may witness to the glory of the king who has come and who will come again. We pray this through your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.